Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch Podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, Political Outreach Director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's show, I will be joined by Lauren Hurl for this session shakedown segment. Lauren chats with Representative Gabrielle Stebbins for our deep dive conversation about the work coming out of the House Environment and Energy Committee. Later on, I speak with Sarah Copeland-Hansis about her nearly two decades serving Vermonters and her ambitions for her new role as our Secretary of State. But first, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media too. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, YouTube and Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting vermontconservationvoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide feedback, email me at jmarsh at vermontconservationvoters.org. Shout out to listener Mary Floyd of Bethel, who wrote to me that they were, quote, amazed at how much emotion and enthusiasm that was evident in the subject of government. She especially appreciated the segment with Charity Clark last week. Thank you, Mary, for providing that. Now I am joined by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters, for our session shakedown segment. It's where we recap the week prior and look to this coming week of the session. Lots of excitement this week and last week, lots of long days on the floor. Uh, Thursday, the House voted 108 to 36 in favor of H-126, which is an act related to community resilience and biodiversity protection, which calls for 30% of Vermont's land and water to be conserved by 2030 and 50% by 2050. We talk with Representative Amy Sheldon over on our sibling publication, The Climate Dispatch video series, fresh from her presenting the bill on the House floor um, and following its passing through the chamber. So for more information on H-126, be sure to check out that video. And we expected a lot of other votes to go to the House last week, but they look like they're going to be this week instead. What do we have coming to the floor uh, in the House chamber this week? Yeah, this week we are expecting to see the bottle bill modernization on the floor. Uh, that bill has moved through several committees and uh, the the version that will be headed to the floor, we will be strongly supporting. It's got really great provisions to improve recycling and update that program and really bring it into the 21st century. Awesome. And also transportation and the budget are expected to be on the House floor as well. Yeah, so lots of work going on uh, last week to pull together the state budget. So um, next week, we can do more of a roundup of what ended up in the budget related to our environmental priorities. Um, and the transportation bill, which is also a big, uh, big effort looking at our whole transportation system, um, well beyond the, the pieces that we follow, will also be up for action in the House. Um, And similarly, we can do a roundup next week of where that landed for the various um, programs that we were looking at for how we're making our transportation system 
more pedestrian, biker, walker friendly, um, and also um, helping support the transition to cleaner vehicles. Yes. And over on the Senate, there's a lot that we're expecting to be taken up by vote this week. Uh, Where's everything at? Yes. So we are anticipating votes in the Senate on at least three VCV priority bills. Uh, One is the bill to ban PFAS and other toxic chemicals from personal care products, textiles, and artificial turf. Uh, So anticipating that vote this week. Uh, We're also anticipating a vote on the ranked choice voting bill. Um, And finally, action on the smart growth housing bill, uh, which has had lots of uh, ongoing, robust conversation. So that will be interesting to see where that kind of final version of the Senate bill lands for that issue. Awesome. And you spoke with Representative Gabrielle Stebbins about the work that the House Committee on Environment and Energy is taking on during this very busy point in the session, including their work on the Affordable Heat Act. Let's hear that now. Great. I am so happy to be here today with Representative Gabrielle Stebbins from Burlington, who has been Um, a wonderful new addition to the House Environment and Energy Committee, who will hear about a couple of the important priorities they've been working on. And Representative Stebbins is also a co-chair of the House's Climate Solutions Caucus, the full legislature's Climate Solutions Caucus, uh, which plays an absolutely critical role in ensuring the legislature stays focused and committed to ambitious climate action. So thanks for being with me. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Excellent. Um, So one of the notable actions today on our environmental agenda was um, passage of the Biodiversity and Conservation Bill, H-126. And we will hear more about that from uh, Chair Amy Sheldon, who we interviewed for the Climate Dispatch video, uh, which we'll link to. So anyone who wants to hear more about that, please check out that. Um, So while I have you, Representative Stebbins, could you tell us a little bit about the latest on what's happening with the bill to update the bottle bill? Yeah, the bottle bill. So I think that comes up on Tuesday on the floor. And uh, what's amazing about this bill is that we actually have not done anything to it since we first enacted it 50 years ago. What's great news for the bottle bill is that Vermonters are fantastic at recycling. 99% of our bottles either go into the blue bin or to redemption centers. What's not such great news is when our, for example, water bottles or plastic water bottles are put into a blue bin, a lot of times it ends up being contaminated um, and then it can't be used for another bottle. Yes, it can be recycled, but a lot of times that ends up being, um, you know, not as high quality as sort of a, a full service circular recycling. Um, So what this bill does basically is ask uh, large producers, you know, Coca-Cola, if you can uh, recycle, if you can have a five cent deposit on a Coca-Cola bottle, why can't we do it for your water bottle? Dasani, hey, Pepsi, if you can do it for Pepsi, why can't we do it for Aquafina? Um, So it it really places the responsibility for uh, the the life of the product with the industry, which uh, personally, I think is a great 
great alignment because it gives the industry the opportunity to really be efficient with how the program is designed to keep an eye on the costs and really gives them control over that area of making sure that um, they are, are good uh, partners and stewards as we continue to try and um, limit how much we use of our natural resources. That is great. And so we're anticipating a floor vote. I'm here with you on Friday. So next week on Tuesday. Yep. Um, and so we'll see hopefully action and a strong vote. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you if you have any representatives um, that might be a little uncertain and if you support this bill, definitely reach out. Last year, I think we had three and a half hours of floor debate on this bill. I will say that this bill is pretty, uh, pretty, it does a pretty good job of making important changes to the bill that we were debating last year. So this is an example of, um, you know, the committee heard a lot of the questions, a lot of the concerns. Um, there was actually a summer working group uh, that met uh, of a bunch of the stakeholders to try and iron out some of the challenges. And now we have a bottle bill that hopefully won't be three and a half hours on the floor. But it's always great to hear from our constituents that what we're working on matters to you. Excellent. Um, so another bill that you all have already started taking up that we know there's a lot of constituent uh, interest and engagement on is the Affordable Heat Act. So again, to remind folks, this bill passed the Senate and already um, it's exciting that the House Environment and Energy Committee has begun testimony. So could you just give us an update on what you all have started looking at and what we expect um, over the next couple of weeks from your committee? Sure. So we've we've only probably taken, I don't know, four or five hours of testimony so far. Uh, and really what the, what the uh, information is that we're learning and hearing right now is sort of laying the ground, um, hearing from the Public Service Department uh, in terms of how other structures work, like our um, uh, energy efficiency utilities, uh, hearing from our legislative council walking through the bill. It took us about two and a half hours to just get through 25 out of 38 pages of the bill. So we're, we're at the beginning stages uh, and very open ears to uh, the questions and the comments and the concerns from the people who come testify before us. Great. So, of course, that bill has been a huge environmental community priority, big priority of the Climate Solutions Caucus. Um, anything that you would ask of Vermonters to think about uh, who are listening to this podcast as we continue with the process for the Affordable Heat Act? Yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, whenever there's big change, there is usually a lot of fear and worry and concerns. So um, if you have any concerns or if you've gotten any information, I know a lot of my constituents um, got little notices in their fuel bill. Um, and so they've been reaching out to me to, to learn more about this bill, but please reach out if you have questions. And if you like what you see, reach out and support it also, because we're definitely hearing the questions. So it's helpful to also hear um, you know, from all views. Great. And I think one important change that the Senate made, um, which at least for being able to answer questions for Vermonters, is uh, the Senate added a provision where the program will be developed, but then the legislature in two years will vote on actually implementing that program. Yeah. So there's, there's this, you know, yep. this really robust opportunity to, I think, answer a lot of the questions that have been raised and, you know, give us even more time to make sure that the program's gonna do everything that we believe it will, um, 
creating opportunities for every Vermonter to transition to cleaner, more affordable heating solutions. Yeah, I really see this bill as uh, making sure that we're taking care of the folks um, who are least likely to be able to afford to make the shifts that, frankly, uh, a lot of the folks who have more money, uh, more resources are already making. They're already buying electric vehicles. They already have heat pumps. Um, what this bill does really is, over the next year and a half, require sort of an engineering plan of how this structure would look like. And then in a year and a half from now, the legislature will review that plan and vote again um, to approve it or not. Great. All right. Um, any last things you want to share with folks that you all have been up to before we transition? Yeah, I think one of the other exciting pieces is that we took a lot of testimony about uh, aquatic invasive species in our water bodies. And we did pass out of uh, committee uh, a bill to start to um, pull together, you know, critical stakeholders to look at how we're treating our water bottles, our water bodies. And then um, also we, our committee made some strong recommendations to uh, re-bolster uh, the funding to provide support for the staff that typically provide assistance and do some of the scientific research when it comes to having healthy water bodies. So we are listening to Vermonters when they say, hey, uh, we can't fish anymore. We can't swim anymore. We're worried about our water quality. Uh, and that's something that hasn't gotten a lot of press because it's a little bit behind the scenes in terms of uh, being placed in the budget bill. Um, but really excited to see that forward progress, as well as some opportunities in climate workforce investment. Great. All right. Well, this very busy crossover week. So grateful for your time, Representative Stebbins. Thank you. And you can hear the house chamber behind us filling up with people and noise. Yep. Um, but now let's turn it over and hear Justin's interview with Secretary of State Sarah Copeland-Hansis. Our 39th Secretary of State was sworn into office in January. Bradford's Sarah Copeland-Hansis transitioned to the role after an incredible 18-year legislative career representing her Orange County District. She has spent almost her entire life in Vermont as a student of our schools, then an educator in our schools, a youth coach, a small business owner, a state legislator, and a mother and wife. She has served as Majority House Leader and as Chair of the House Committee on Government Operations, certainly priming her for this role. In her final biennium in the State House, she held a perfect 100 score from our organization and maintained a lifetime score of 91. Welcome to the podcast, Secretary of State Copeland Hansis. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. First, I want to just note how much I admire your community in Bradford. Uh, there really is a sense of togetherness and community that I've witnessed that I recognize in many Vermont towns, but not all of them have that special sauce like I feel Bradford does. Uh, I'm sure it's hard to encapsulate nearly two decades of time representing your community in the Vermont House. But if you had to say, what do you think makes your community so special? Well, you know, I think that uh, there are a lot of special communities, as you said, around Vermont. And I think the thing that I love about Bradford is um, that it's a mix of folks who've lived there for a long time who have also opened their arms welcomingly to new people. And I often find that it's the, it is new people and new energy that collaborates with the, you know, the, the, the longtime folks and, and their energy that makes uh, the perfect special combination. So 
That's, I love that. That's my guess. Yes. <laughs> um, so what inspired your desire to seek the office of Secretary of State? It's not entirely uncommon for someone to make the shift from legislator to Secretary of State. Um, but was this something that you had your eyes on for a while or was it an opportunistic move? Well, you know, the beautiful thing about the Secretary of State's office is that it really is the keeper of um, access to government, uh, the keeper of democracy. Um, and those things are really appealing to me. Um, you know, during my time in the legislature, I worked on a lot of issues that I was really passionate about, you know, climate and the environment being being two of them, um, but also, you know, access to affordable health care or um, sexual harassment in the workplace or modernizing our sexual assault um, uh, statutes to protect people. Um, those, all of the things that I've worked on, though, have been things that have come to me because people stood up and said, this is a problem that I see and I want the government to help us figure out how to fix it. And, um, you know, I always say that, uh, that, that, you know, the point of a democracy is that we come together to solve problems that none of us could solve on our own individually, right? And what better place to exemplify that than climate action, right? Nothing that you do individually or that I do individually will, uh, will save our planet. But if we're all working together and if we come with a voice and activate our democracy, uh, we can make big change. And so I really like the idea of coming uh, into the Secretary of State's role because I really truly believe that uh, a healthy democracy is the only way that we're going to demand this kind of action that we need from our leaders. Awesome. Yeah. And if you've ever even voted in the state, then you can say that you've interacted with your office. Um, and you owned a small business in Bradford. And so you're very familiar as a customer of the Secretary of State's office. Uh, but there's so much to the office. What exactly does the Secretary of State's office do? So we have four main divisions. Uh, we, um, we register corporations. So you come in, you get your trade name, um, you uh, then can go into the other parts of state government that you need to interact with as a as maybe an employer or a small business. Um, but your first stop is the Secretary of State's office. We also um, protect the public through our Office of Professional Regulation. Um, that is, you know, the, the standards that a, a professional needs to have in order to practice their profession. Um, they get their license or their certificate through the Office of Professional Regulation. And if something goes awry, um, our team is part of um, investigating and protecting the public in that way. Uh, we are the keepers of the state archives. So all of the records and, uh, and archives and historical uh, documents of our state going all the way back to pre-statehood um, are, are stored and managed in the uh, Vermont State uh, Archives and Records Administration. And, and that is becoming an, uh, an increasingly digital uh, proposition as more agencies go from paper records and paper forms to digital. And, uh, and so that's, you know, that's an exciting place to, uh, to, to really engage in, in some 21st century thinking. Um, and then, of course, the elections division is sort of the, the highest profile. And, uh, you know, my goal with elections is, um, is really to help Vermonters understand how to do democracy, how 
to come together with a group of people who see a common problem and petition your government to help you solve that. It's not just about voting. And, and you know, we're hiring an education and civic engagement coordinator. And, and I, I always say, you know, yeah, you need to understand civics because you need to understand how government works so that you're not susceptible to, you know, misinformation about stolen elections. But civics isn't just about, you know, the sort of dry, boring three branches of government. Civics is about how do you come together and make change. And in that way, I think we're uh, really hoping to uh, energize and activate uh, Vermonters to be able to get uh, to, to, to get involved in democracy, regardless of what, uh, you know, what, what your priorities are, uh, how do you come together and try to make change? I love that. And I have a question that I'm, I'm going to go a little rogue right now because I want to know a little bit more about the archives, the, um, both the Senate and house committees for government operations. I took a little tour of mm-hmm. the archives, yes. uh, maybe about a month ago. And, I had a lot of envy. So where are those archives? Is it appointment only? What can you, I'm just curious. Oh my gosh, it's fascinating. If you, if you like history, if you like genealogy, if you, if you like knowing what your community looked like and who the decision makers were at times in the past, uh, you want to take a trip to the archives. Uh, They're in Middlesex. Um, we do have a public uh, records room. You can come and, uh, and folks who work there will help people do geneal- genealogical research. They'll help folks do, um, you know, the history of the Constitution research. What, what were the, uh, you know, what were the debates in the legislature around, you know, this bill or that bill? Um, and so there's just a wealth of information there. And I totally, you know, I think one of my, uh, dream nightmares would be to, to, you know, accidentally get locked in the archives for the night. Cause then I'd have nothing to do, but, you know, go around and, and, uh, you know, dig around and research and, and, uh, learn things about where we came from. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I have put myself in the, in my town records in the vault before and just like really went wild in there. So I can only imagine it's just that elevated, but, but like thousands of times larger. Yes. Floor to ceiling, you know, amazing. And so you can, you can, um, you can just make an appointment to visit. You can make an appointment. Yeah. They don't, they don't actually just walk in. They don't actually let you just run, run wild in the, Uh, in the actual stacks, but you know, they, they, you can go in there, you can ask for help. Um, I came across a gentleman, who was visiting with Visara once last fall, who um, who had these historic railroad documents that he'd uh, inherited from his uncle's estate. And he wanted to know if they had historic value. And if they did, he wanted to be able to give them to the archives. And so he sat with the director of the archives for, I want to say, two, three hours. And they talked about it and he showed her what he had. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, it's just, you never know what's going to walk through the door there. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to put that on my my bucket list. Um, And so VCV, Vermont Conservation Voters, we're often associated with the conservation part of our organization's name, uh, and more so than we are with the voters part. Um, But voting and access and protection and the expansion of democracy is very much aligned with our organization and the work that you do. What steps has the office made over the past decade or so, um, and what are the goals in this regard for your tenure? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, So under my predecessor's leadership, we did a lot of work on increasing access to the ballot box. Um, 
every year that uh, that I would stand out at the polls as a state representative asking my neighbors to vote for me, I would hear people come out of the polls and, and you know, whenever I heard something that was a frustration, I made note of it. So, you know, it used to be that we would hear people say, well, I came here to vote today. I took time off of work and the I got in there and, and they said that I'm not on the checklist. Well, what can we do about that? So under Jim Condos leadership, the legislature passed um, automatic voter registration so that when you go to the DMV, unless you opt out, you can be automatically added to the voter rolls. So that's really important. We also realized, though, that there are times when people um, maybe you moved from Bradford to Newbury and you forgot in the hustle and bustle of moving that you needed to change your voter registration. Uh, so we instituted same day voter registration. So now you can go into your new community the day that you uh, want to vote and you can register and vote. Um, and then during the pandemic, of course, we had to find a way for people to be able to vote safely without having to come face to face with uh, with the, the folks running elections in their community. And so we instituted um, vote by mail. And it was so popular and we saw such a great turnout that we came back the following year and made um, automatic vote by mail uh, permanent. And now every general election, you will automatically get a ballot in the mail, not local elections, not primaries, um, but your November general election. And certainly we want to continue to have the conversation about how to get um, automatic mailing of ballots for other uh, other elections because Vermonters find that to be very convenient and it does boost turnout, which is a good thing. When you live in a democracy, you want more people to vote. Exactly. And so I, I know that we're going to talk about S32 soon, but what are besides putting that one aside, what are some other goals that you have for your office? So really my prime focus is around this education and civic engagement. So this uh, position will be filled as of uh, the beginning of April. And when we get this person on board, our first phase is going to be to start developing uh civics curriculum for school teachers in Vermont that will be Vermont relevant and easy to plug into the, the lessons that they already need to teach. Um, we want to have a group of teacher advisors who come and say, you know, this is, this is something that would be really the best way to do it. And, and so we will, we will not be creating this in a vacuum. We'll be creating it with the help of the people who are actually out there teaching right now, but pre-K all the way through to high school, we need to do a better job of preparing young people to dive into democracy. Um, we also need to recognize that there are a lot of adults in the communities who uh, either didn't have a good civics background or they've forgotten what they learned. Um, so we all also wanna do a lot of engagement out um, in the communities, you know, tabling at a farmer's market or uh, going to the county fair or holding events in local communities around how do you participate in democracy? How do you make change when you see something that's not being done? Um, and so phase two will be that outreach to adults uh, to get adults uh, equipped with the information that they need in order to, to feel inspired to vote. Um, and then phase three will be in the run up to the 2024 general election because I think we need to start creating a voter guide so that when you get your ballot in the mail 45 days ahead of the election, you also get your voter guide so that you can spend that time with your ballot, researching the candidates and finding the candidates whose values most closely match yours. 
Yeah, that's great. I really like that. And I also really like, I saw that you distributed a bunch of um, the Freedom and Unity yes. um, graphic, uh, what would you call that? A graphic guide? Yes, I think, exactly. Right? Yes. Yeah, that was a great um, collaboration with uh, the Center for Cartoon Studies um, and, and something that was created uh, during Jim Kondo's time that we will continue to distribute because it is so fun and helpful. And uh, hopefully we'll have future chapters of that uh, of that that series. And uh, it's a great way to engage with people about how to do democracy. Absolutely. And um, episode two of this podcast, I sit down with Susan Clark, who contributed to that. So if you want all the information, you can check out that episode. Beautiful. Yes. Well, you've gotten, you've gotten a touch on everyone. I, I love try. Um, so S32, which is an elections bill, that would be the start of a dramatic improvement to how we choose our elected leaders. At this time of the recording, it's Thursday, March 23rd. The bill is with the Senate Committee on Appropriations after passing the Senate Committee on Government Operations with a unanimous tripartisan vote. If enacted, S32 would put ranked choice voting in place for Vermont's presidential primaries starting in 2028. It would allow municipalities to adopt ranked choice voting for local elections without having legislative approval. And it would create a summer study committee to look at how to best educate voters and to determine what 2026 statewide elections may use ranked choice voting. You gave testimony on the Senate Committee on Government Operations and ran on a platform that included ranked choice voting. What are your thoughts and feelings on this bill and why do you feel it is important for Vermonters? So I think that there are a lot of elections in, uh, in Vermont where it is helpful for somebody to be able to say, out of a group of candidates, I like this person first, but if they don't win, I'd like to be, I would like to be able to cast a ballot for this person. Um, and so that is essentially what ranked choice voting does, is it allows you to say, this is my favorite, this is my second favorite, this is my third favorite. Um, and, and that's really why I support ranked choice voting, because I think it gives power to people to vote their, uh, their hearts and their, um, and their values, but it also gives them a, a, the option to give that, you know, that fallback or that second or third um, preference uh, in the event that their first choice uh, candidate doesn't win. Um, the reason why I think it's great to start with a presidential primary is because that is one of the only races in Vermont where you're virtually guaranteed to have multiple candidates on that ballot, right? Many times when I ran for my state representative seat, it would be, you know, me on the Democratic side and, and maybe one person on the Republican side, and there were there was no third candidate. Um, and so in those races, those state house races, it may not be as relevant, but there are always uh, races where there are multiple candidates where it would be helpful. And that's why I thought it would be helpful to start with that presidential primary. I think when the Senate committee got into the nitty gritty detail and realized how many moving parts there were, uh, they decided to pull back from the, um, from the 2024 presidential primary. I think in part because they heard from town clerks who were like, oh my gosh, we just barely did all of these, you know, automatic vote by mail changes. And, and now in, you know, eight months, you want us to figure out how to pull off ranked choice voting. Um, and so the, the committee listened and responded, but I'm really excited that what they did in passing the bill out, they didn't just push the date back to 2028, where, where we're all going to sort of fall asleep before we ever get a chance to start working with ranked choice voting. What they did is they said that municipalities can vote to adopt ranked choice voting 
if that's what the municipality wants. And that's going to give Vermonters a lot of opportunity, I think, to learn what ranked choice voting is about, to practice it, to use it, to, uh, you know, to see what those ballots look like and also see the the great possibilities that it gives to to help that election settle on the person who has the broadest support, which is really what you want in your leaders. Yeah, and, and already right now municipalities can do it, but they have to go through legislative approval. They would like have to Burlington. get a charter change, charter like change. Burlington did. And yeah. this uh, this bill, if enacted, would would make that a much smoother process. It would just be a vote of the local uh, electorate to say, "Yep, we want our next local elections to be done by ranked choice." And so um, you mentioned waiting around till twenty twenty eight. Of course, there's this bill would. Uh, create the summer study. Um, what about 2026 for statewide elections? Is that on the radar? Yeah. So the the committee, uh, the Senate committee put together this summer study group, which I think is going to be a great opportunity to, to really think about and look at where it makes sense to do uh, ranked choice voting in other races. And, and that would be the opportunity in that midterm of 2026. Um, again, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to have ranked choice voting in a place where you only usually see two candidates, right? Mm-hmm. It, it makes sense to use it in a place where you uh, often have multiple candidates. So that'll be, the, uh, that'll be the, the exploration that this summer study committee will do is, you know, where, where do we think we would use it if we wanted to use it in 26? And what are the, uh, what are the nitty gritty election procedure details that we want to set into statute so that our local clerks who administer elections would know how to do that um, in in future elections. Well, it's very exciting, and uh, this will likely go to the floor, the Senate floor, next week. I'm I'm imagining, or this week by the time you're listening to this. Um, and when you were in the House, you were the lead sponsor on the Global Warming Solutions Act, and you finished your time in the legislature as the co-chair of the Climate Solutions Caucus for three years. How do you see this role playing a part in that conversation, and why is it such an important cause to be fighting for? Oh, my gosh. I, <laughs> yeah. So I, when I think about why, I, I come back to the many, many conversations that I've had with young people. Um, you know, I've always been a teacher and a coach, and, you know, I have three kids who are now in their early 20s. Um, but even just last week, I went over to the State House to talk with this group of pages, the eighth graders who are uh, helping to deliver messages and, um, and, and bills around to different folks in the State House. And, you know, whenever you ask young people what they're concerned about, they come up, they come up with some really big and weighty issues and and ones that frankly make me disappointed in ourselves that my generation hasn't been able to figure these out. You know, we're talking about school shootings, we're talking about um, mental health and self-harm, you know, we're talking about LGBTQ, we're talking about uh, social justice and racial justice issues. Um, I want to I want to take all that I've learned um, in my time in the legislature and now in the role of Secretary of State and really put it towards helping young people feel empowered to make the changes that we were never able to make or haven't yet been able to make because they are so powerful. It was the young people coming to the State House during the debate around the Global Warming Solutions Act that pushed that bill over the edge. You know, some of the folks who serve in the legislature are sort of grandparent age. And when they saw young people 
coming up to them and saying, look, I need to live another 70 years on this planet. I need you to act now so that this will be a habitable place. Because right now, I don't feel like I could uh, start a family because I don't think that there will be an earth for me to, to raise a family in. And, you know, so those voices are so important to our political process. And, um, and I'm really looking forward to um, helping them amplify their voices so that we can accomplish some of the things that we need to do. Well, I thank you so much for not only taking the time today to do this interview, but also for your leadership and as a, as a statewide elected and someone who's done this work for so long, I really appreciate everything that you've done in your well, dedication service. Thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure to do all of these uh, fine things and more. <laughs> and I really hope that, uh, that I, I hope that we can continue to do good work together because Vermont's a special place. Absolutely. And as we kind of see things evolve, I'm sure we'll have you back for little so. times here and there to give us updates on all things elections and Secretary of State office. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Now it's time for our climate stat of the week. 18,900. That is the approximate number of people that make up Vermont's climate workforce who work at least some of the time in climate mitigation, adaptation, or resilience, according to the Energy Action Network's 2022 report. This includes the 17,502 clean energy workers documented in the 2021 Clean Energy Industry Report, plus climate workers in other sectors such as agriculture and land management, waste management, public transit, education, financing and philanthropy, and selling and servicing electric equipment. Reaching our climate requirements will require a significant increase in Vermont's climate workforce. For example, we currently have about 770 people working in weatherization as field workers, office staff, and energy auditors, but we may need more than 6,200 people in those careers by 2030. Similarly, we have about 225 HVAC workers in Vermont in 2020 installing single zone and multi-zone heat pumps and We'll need to double those numbers to more than 450 people in those careers by 2030. I want to thank our guests, Secretary of State Sarah Copeland-Hansis, as well as Representative Gabrielle Stebbins, and of course, Lauren Hurl for assisting me. Next week, I will be back with an interview with our Lieutenant Governor, David Zuckerman. Until next time, thanks for listening.